Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Out of the pan, out of the mound for hour number two of Sports Talk. I am Scott Beatty, and Evan Kahn is taking a chair as well. And we are right until 6 o'clock. Thank you for joining us. Coming up, some baseball discussion with Katie Wu of The Athletic on the, except for last night, Red Hot Cardinals. Colin Likas on the latest on the preps scene as well some news coming our way today the not surprising note that urbana high school will not field a varsity football team this year so that and some other items with colin on the dockets what a great day sorry if you had to work <laughs> today was like a like a mid-june nice kind of dry and not very humid that is Spectacular day. Love it. Yeah. it means falls are coming. No, no, no. We don't need to go that far. I do like fall. I don't know. I mean, football is right around the corner. Really, once football starts, that's the that's the end of summer, at least for, for us. Yeah, so. that's true. I, then it could just rain. Yeah, dark, I, I, still don't want, I still don't want no rain, but <laughs> <laughs> it could cool off a little bit. White Sox baseball tonight. They take on the Kansas City Royals. Johnny Cueto will be on the hill. That's a 6.30 pregame and a 7.10 first pitch. You'll hear it on DWS. Cardinals in Colorado. They stumbled big time last night against the Rockies. They'll try and right the uh, the ship tonight with Jose Quintana. And the Cubs with a win at Wrigley against Washington. And I've heard... uh, a couple of people observe that Wrigley has been really good atmosphere, and we were talking about this. But I mean, the the park is the park. I mean, it's it's beautiful and and all that. But the fans very engaged and interested in a team that has nothing to play for in terms of standings or playoffs mm. this year. So uh, they're they're acting like every game's a big deal. That's part of the beauty of baseball. Uh, even if you're playing out the string, every kind of game feels like its own thing anyway. Mm-hmm. But the Cubs uh, get a nice win over the Washington Nationals. Last night, was, yeah, a losing effort against the worst team in baseball. So pretty disappointing, but there was over 37,000 in attendance. And even going into that eighth inning when the Cubs were down, it sounded like the majority of the fans were there. Um, yeah, I've been there twice in the last three weeks. It was Really electric against the Mets on that Sunday when we thought Willie was leaving. When I was up there on Saturday, as you said, I saw, who all did I see? I saw Rockies fans. I saw Blue Jays fans. I saw Marlins fans. Of course, that's who they were playing. But uh, you you get a little bit of everything up there at Wrigley. But fans are staying engaged, and Justin Steele turned in another good performance uh, today after the the double-digit strikeouts last week at, at Wrigley Field. So he looks like he's... 
pretty much writing his name in ink as far as the starting rotation goes for for next year, as long as he finishes strong here and seeing the kids play, it's fun. Nico Horner continues mm-hmm. to just be the man, and uh, Cubs take take two or three and off to Iowa. Yep, tomorrow night the Field of Dreams game against the Reds. That'll be a nice national spotlight for the Cubs to have, and of course all the pomp and circumstance that goes around that Field of Dreams game. As just mentioning Lauren last hour, and there won't be one next year. Mm-hmm. Just reading that. Frank Thomas is part of the ownership group out there, and he's he was the one that uh, dropped the news because there's going to be so much construction mm-hmm. going on. MLB doesn't really want to do a you know mess with all that. Nobody goes there. There's too much construction. <laughs> Don't want to. Sl- there are too many traffic jams there in Iowa. Otherwise, <laughs> so they'll skip it for next year and presumably bring it back. Um, but looks like things are all ready to go again for another. I, I, Scott Docterman was is going to be there to cover it. Actually, he was saying that that atmosphere was incredible last year. I don't know that you can get another game like that. No, last year was just perfect. Everything was opening up again. You had two really competitive teams, and they were finally playing there for the first time. So it, it was super unique and special to be there. And, and you had and your dudes being dudes in the game. Yeah, that and doesn't. Ta walks it off. That doesn't and, hurt you know, either. Homering and all mm-hmm. that. I mean. That that adds to it as well in this year, two under 500 teams in the same division, in the same kind of geographic region of the U.S., so it doesn't really have the, the same kind of, I don't know, bravado that a, that a White Sox-Yankees does, but should still be aesthetically pleasing. I don't know why I started thinking about it, but I started thinking about what, who was in the division that the Cubs were in. I, I think around the uh, because the Braves. Somebody mentioned the Braves winning so many division titles, and I was trying to, yeah, oh yeah, the Braves were in the West, and so I rattle off my brain. This is like you know late eighties, early nineties, you know before the switch. Like who was who? I was the rest of the division. I'm trying. Okay, what was it? Okay, the West. Obviously, I know it had the Braves, and then who else was out there? Okay, well, San Francisco Giants, Los Angeles Dodgers, San Diego Padres, and 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 the Houston Astros were still in the National mm-hmm. League. Um, but okay, then. So the Cubs were in the NL East, and we had the Mets and the Expos, and and the Cardinals were in it, and the Pirates and the Mets and the Reds, and that's no wait, that's not an imbalance. One of those teams was in the West. It was the Reds. Really? We lived in a time where Cincinnati uh, was considered the Western Division of the National League. What a mess that was. I'm glad I, I didn't live in that world because that would have just drove me nuts. It still doesn't make sense to me that the Pelicans play in the Western Conference for the NBA. And when <laughs> you're trying to balance things out and you've got so many teams up there in the Northeast, I guess it kind of makes sense. But, yeah, I, I'm glad we've got the, the three divisions yeah, nowadays. Eventually the Rockies and the Diamondbacks came along and we we. Milwaukee was once in the American, American League. League. Yeah, we we reshuffled some things around <laughs> to make it geographically make more sense. But anyway, the Cubs and the Cincinnati. So are you Reds. saying it's a battle of East and West tomorrow? <laughs> the old East and West, West of the Mississippi. Even though the Cubs are further west than the Reds, yeah, <laughs> real cool. Uh, what else we got going on? Some football chatter today. Illinois continuing to plug along in training camp. They're ahead of a lot of teams because of the upcoming opener on August 27th. And Chase Brown running back for Illinois. Now, I'm going to bring you this conversation I had with him. He was caught off guard that he was named one of the freak <laughs> athletes uh, on the list that came out from the Athletic today of the top 50 
freak college athletes. Here's Chase Brown, a line-eye running back. Week and a half into camp since we last talked to you. How's it feeling? Man, I feel really good. Um, just getting the flow of the tempo and everything. And um, obviously we have a lot to work on right now, but um, you know, I'm happy about you know, my field offense so far. Does it start to be a little bit of a grind here because you're about halfway into it, halfway from actual game week? You know what? Um, the way things are this year and just with our schedule, it, it hasn't felt like a grind. I'm, I'm so locked in on the details and trying to improve Dan out. So I'm just, I just, I'm not feeling the grind of him. I'm just, I'm just loving, um, loving the process each day. What are the details you as a running back need to focus on? Oh, mainly pass protection. I think that's something that um, is huge in this offense. It takes priority um, and it, it makes a difference. Uh, in the pocket, and you know, we pick up, uh, a, you know, a plug, some sort of blitzer, and the pass gets off. You know, that's that's uh, that's that's important. So, is there something you haven't asked yourself to do more of in that? Uh, is it a physical sacrifice? Is it a willingness to get in front of that guy in a way that maybe you don't naturally want to yeah, do? Yeah, you know, you know, you're right. I think physical sacrifice is a good way to put it. But um, you know, anything to protect the quarterback and make sure that uh, plays are getting off. How does it feel to be called a freak? I don't know if you saw that in the Athletic, but you made Bruce Feldman's list of freak athletes. No, that's um, that's cool. I have to read the article. Um, it's a good thing. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, that's cool. I'll have to take a look at it, but um, you know, I'm sure. There's a lot of other good guys on there, and you know it'd be fun to take a look at. Well, both you and Sid were, were mentioned uh, because of some of your metrics, and also referenced your your folks and their athletic background. So. Did you feel growing up like, hey, I am a different athlete, I stand out, I can just do certain things that other people can't? Maybe when you're young, but, you know, as you get older and um, people develop, uh, you know, things just get more competitive. And I think it, what it comes down to is, you know, who's willing to put in the work, who's willing to, to do what it takes to get ahead of other, other, other um, com- people, like people you're com- competing against. And that's something that my brother and I took, uh, took to heart and... You know, all the work that we put on off the field, it's, you know, it's, it's paying off. And, um, you know, I'm just blessed to be in this position. What's encouraged you the most here in at least the last few days coming out of the scrimmage and all that? Just fixing, picking up on uh, some of the mistakes we made and just clean that up, right? And, you know, as long as we do that and um, we prioritize what we messed up on and work on, you know, that, but it, it also increase uh, what we're good at. And I think that's, that's important. So, Best of luck, man. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. That is Chase Brown. Here's what was specifically mentioned about the Brown Twins in this novelty list of top 50 freak athletes in college football. Chase Brown, a six foot, 207-pound running back, added four pounds of lean muscle mass this summer while losing three pounds of fat. He also reached 22.5 on the GPS on one of his long touchdown runs last year, that's, that's 22 and a half miles per hour. Mm-hmm. That's fast. Yeah, it's not bad. I don't know if that's gold medal track fast, but that's really fast. Definitely football fast. Twin brother Sidney Brown added almost six pounds of lean muscle mass this summer while losing one pound of fat. It was, how can you possibly lose any more fat if you're those guys? <laughs> Bragging rights, though, go to Chase. Sidney Brown hit 22.4 MPH, as Pat Hughes would say, (laughs) in-game. MPH. Yes. (laughs) 97 MPH on the radar gun. (laughs) Here's your top freak athlete. Uh, I actually don't know the pronunciation. Is it Mazie or Mozzie Smith from Michigan, the defensive tackle? Mm. 
uh, number one freak football, freak player in football. Six foot three, three hundred and thirty-seven pound senior. Rare power and agility. Let's start with this. Smith does twenty-two reps on the bench press with three hundred and twenty-five pounds, not two twenty-five, three twenty-five. Close grip bench. 550 pounds. Vertical jump. This is a D lineman, remember. Mm -hmm. Vertical jump, 33 inches. Broad jump, 9 feet, 4 and a half. A 441 shuttle time. I don't know the distance on that, but that's the back and forth, Mm -hmm. right? Like gym class? Right. Uh, that would have tied any of uh, best defensive tackle at this year's NFL scouting scouting combine, and any better than any defensive tackle weighing three hundred and ten pounds or more. Um, <laughs> his three cone time, six point nine five. That would have been the fastest among D tackles at the combine, and he nearly matched a team record for seven 26-inch high stairs that the players have to jump up. These are 26-inch stairs. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, he's, he, he's a freak. Um, okay. They have a machine for combo, combo twisting that he maxed out. They had to, upgrade, they had to custom upgrade it for him because he could handle the 600-pound twist. <laughs> so anyway, Illinois did, uh, plays Michigan this year. <laughs> They had uh, quite a few players on that list. I, I think it, I, I quit scrolling when I got to like ninety something. I'm like, okay, I get it. There's a there's a lot of freaks, but uh, uh, the thing that stood out most, I, I think, from that list is if you're present on social media, Bruce Feldman will find you and put you on the freaks list. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that this is a very scientific process. No, no. Nonetheless, the people highlighted are. Really impressive. Yeah, whoever, whoever's taken Chase and Sydney's pictures has been doing a, a premium job uh, on the social media. So, congrats to them. All right, Cardinals. It's a little bit of a freak if you can hit a baseball. So we'll talk about that and pitching them with Katie Wu next. Later on tonight, the St. Louis Cardinals will take on the Colorado Rockies' 741st pitch. And the Cardinals will try to answer back after losing to the Rockies in big fashion last night, but still have been playing overall some of their best baseball. Here to talk with us on Sports Talk about it, Katie Wu, who writes for The Athletic and is on the beat for the Cardinals. Katie, thanks for joining us once again. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I appreciate it. Look, when we got to the uh, trade deadline, the Cardinals had some issues to solve, it seemed, especially with their rotation. And I know everybody wanted to see Juan Soto end up under the arch, and that didn't happen. But nonetheless, there were other things I think that people were concerned about. And what do you know? The Cardinals just swept out the Cubs and the Yankees, stubbed their toe last night, but are playing some of their best baseball. So what gives here? (laughs) I like the term stub the toe. I referred to last night's game as just an overall clunker. Uh, look, the course field effect is strong, but I'm not sure it's 
10 earned runs and two and two thirds strong. But hey, Miles Michaelis has been straight up dominant for the Cardinals all season, so I think we could give him a free pass there. I think what you're seeing from the Cardinals is a rejuvenated lineup. I mean, you look at the acquisitions they made at the trade deadline. We'll see Jose Quintana make his second Cardinals start of his uh, of the tenure tonight. Jordan Montgomery really profiles what that starting rotation needed. He has a good swing and miss rate, good chase rate on the ground on the ground a lot. Doesn't walk a lot of guys. But I also think you're seeing the resurgence of two really key important players. Paul DeYoung is one. I'm sure we'll get into that. But I really don't think, guys, that we can uh, overstate the importance of Yadier Molina coming back into that clubhouse. He came back from the injured list the same day as the trade deadline. And if you ask any player in that clubhouse, the first thing they're going to say is having Yadier back, his presence, his demeanor has totally changed the complexion of the Cardinals clubhouse. Nolan Arnato has credited, and Nolan Arnato, the National League Player of the Week, you have to be doing a lot of things right to get that award. And even he credited Yadier Molina as the reason for the team's success. Tyler O'Neill, Quintana, Ollie Marmol, Adam Wainwright, of course. You know, when you think about the, the presence that Yadier brings, the pitch calling, the framing, his ability to slow the game down. I mean, Giovanni Gallegos in that key 1-0 shutout over the Yankees on Saturday said, having Yadier come up to the to, – him on the mound and pivotal ninth inning said three sentences that's all he needed to hear i really think you're seeing a cardinals team that's clicking at the right time and really feels confident in their beliefs because they have their catcher back and because the front office made the acquisitions that they so desperately needed katie Wu with us here on the athletic uh, uh, jack flaherty a rehab assignment beginning soon how quickly could he be back yeah, Jack Flaherty starts his rehab assignment tonight in Memphis. He's slated for about 30 to 35 pitches. Now, Jack is not slated or eligible to come off the 60-day injured list until August 26th. So I think the Cardinals are really going to utilize the month of August and really make sure he's stretched out. If everything goes according to plan, the plan right now is for Jack to make four rehab starts where he'd be eligible to come off the IL anytime between August 29th and August 31st. The Cardinals are in Cincinnati at that time, and that is their tentative timetable blueprint for when they can expect Jack to come back. The plan has always been for Flaherty to return as a starting pitcher. They're confident that with four rehab starts with the normal progression, 30 to 35, 45 to 50, 60, and then 75, that he'll be able to uh, come back as a starter. And I don't think, again, we can overstate the importance of Jack Flaherty coming back to a rotation, especially in September when those games really matter. Um, that is the plan for the Cardinals so far, and they certainly have their fingers crossed that Jack can remain healthy. Hey, Katie, this is Evan, and I did want to ask about Paul DeYoung or, or just really how everybody's going to get playing time. It's nice that the NL finally adopted the, the DH, but you've got young guys and Donovan and Gorman and Edmund and, and, of course, the two MVP candidates in there as well. How does DeYoung fit into that, and uh, is there uh, an everyday shortstop on the Cardinals uh, roster right now? That everyday shortstop should Paul DeYoung continue to hit is DeYoung. Uh, the Cardinals have made it very clear that they don't plan on using DeYoung as a platoon bat. They've stated multiple times their best team is when Paul DeYoung is the starting shortstop. He has above average defensive metrics. He's their best their best overall defense. And this is no knock on Tommy Evan, who plays a, a spectacular shortstop as well. But their best defense is DeYoung and Edmund in the middle infield, leaving Nolan Gorman to be the DH against right-handed hitters. That leaves Brendan Donovan a little bit outside looking in, but one thing that Donovan has in his favor is his ability to play every single position. So he can give guys reprieves and kind of fill in as the rotating utility role 
a role that I think has been adopted by teams more and more as the years go on and teams adapt to the modernization of the game. Juan Yepes will come and make things a little bit uh, more compacted, too. He's starting to rehab assignment in Memphis, had his first game yesterday. But I think when you're looking at Paul DeYoung and his resurgence, he's never been a, p- a player that profiles hit for average, even during his all-star season. But he's always been a player that has had the power and the defensive ability. Cardinals are seeing that firsthand right now. If he continues to hit this way, he will be the starting shortstop going forward, and they'll slot the pieces around him. Yeah, and I'm sure Donovan's presence uh, ha- ha- figured into the decision to to trade their everyday center fielder in Harrison Bader for uh, a pitching a starting pitcher that they really needed it in Jordan Montgomery. But uh, something we've talked about and we've been hearing out in Milwaukee with the trade of Justin or Josh Hader and didn't really sit well with the clubhouse. How are the Cardinals taking things with uh, switching players that are on the major league roster in season? Yeah, you know, it's always a tough a tough um, adjustment when you have a fan favorite and a guy that has a big presence in the clubhouse leave unexpectedly. I mean, certainly no one was expecting Harrison to be traded, and no one was expecting Jordan Montgomery to be traded as well from the Yankees. But when you look at the Cardinals, I think Harrison going down with plantar fasciitis for the majority of the year really opened the door for Dylan Carlson, who of the three starting outfielders when the Cardinals opened the season was always going to be the one that the Cardinals felt the need to extend the most. Carlson showed how expendable he can be and his ability to adjust the center field. And the Cardinals found a, a loophole really to swap Harrison for a, a need that they desperately needed to acquire. And when you look at Jordan Montgomery, and I mean, we've talked about this, he's a left-handed, he's a left-handed sinker ball pitcher. That's a trait the Cardinals covet heavily. I mean, look, they signed Stephen Matz for four years, $44 million on the premise that he is a left-handed sinker baller. But Jordan Montgomery, I think fans were a little taken aback and why they traded Harrison for him. One, because Harrison is so beloved in St. Louis, but two, because he wasn't really a link to any of the big trade rumors out there. Cardinals or fans didn't really know too much about him with, you know, the expectations being Luis Castillo or Frankie Montas. But when you're looking at how Montgomery breaks down as a pitcher, I mean, he's exactly what the Cardinals need. His nearly 50% ground ball rate in 2022 is a career high. His walk percentage, 91st percentile on baseball. His chase rate in a rotation that severely misses or severely lacks swing and miss, that's in the 88th percentile. The guys in that clubhouse know it. They can identify as tough as it is to lose Harrison. The biggest need in that clubhouse was to assure some starting pitching, and that has alleviated many of the concerns going forward. Katie Wu talking with us here on Sports Talk. Katie, do you get an MVP vote this year? You know, it's surprising. I was just uh, remarking about this. We usually, the BBWA voters, find out early in the season what kind of category we have. Last year, I found out in May that I was I had the National League Cy Young, and I penciled in Jacob DeGrom, so obviously things changed there. <laughs> um, but none of us have gotten word of our category, and I would say it'd be pretty tough to have an MVP vote this year in the National League, so I don't know. Yeah, that, well, that leads me to my question, I guess. Where would you, if the season ended now, where would you direct a vote that you may or may not have? And I'm particularly curious to know where you think Nolan Arenado would stack up. Uh, Evan pointed out uh, to me during the break that he's got the top war, but maybe not as much attention. 
Yes, and I think that's a little bit of a product of playing on the same team as Paul Goldschmidt, who has had a career year at age 34 and was undoubtedly the inarguable National League MVP for the first half of the season. But if you look at those two players, I mean, they're so identical in their production. Nolan came into the court into Coors Field on Tuesday hitting above 300. This is, looks like some of the best baseball he's ever played. And it's difficult. I, I know he told reporters in Denver that he feels like it's Goldschmidt's award. He's going to have to go on an absolute tear to take that away from him. I do think when you look at the body of consistency, Goldschmidt has been a little bit more consistent, but that should not outshadow anything Nolan Arnato has been doing. Cardinals have, it looks like, two potential league MVPs hitting three and four for them. And I think that puts a little bit more pressure, and it did put more pressure on the front office to make these moves at the deadline, because really, how are you going to have two guys that have an arguable, compelling case to win the National League MVP award and not win the division? Uh, to me, that's the bigger story than if one or two Cardinals crack that top three in National League MVP voting, although it looks like they certainly will. So do you generally lean then towards uh, an MVP or a Cy Young or whatever needs to be on a contending team? I do. Um, I, I don't like to make blanket statements, but when you're looking at overall impact, I always, if there's a, a compelling case to be made, I'm going to lean a little bit more towards the team in contention. Of course, when you have a Shohei Otani, there's an arguable in the American League last year who the MVP was. Everything, every year changes a little bit. I try to be as objective as possible when I go into these votes, but I do think if you are kind of torn between voting, my my edge is always to lean towards the team that's more in contention or or has more at stake. Katie Wu here on Sports Talk. Katie, you, you bring up how the Cardinals' two best, most invested in players who are on the, the wrong side of 30 are, are having their best year. And although the Cardinals made some moves at, at the deadline, I don't know. They, they didn't do a, a superstar kind of move. I just wonder, what's a, is there a feeling that this is a World Series team when you mention those two guys are, are having career years and they made some starting pitching moves? Could they have maybe done more to, to go more all-in for these guys? Or do they think that this success can be repeated uh, again next year and the year after that as guys get older. I'm just kind of surprised the Cardinals didn't do more this year. You know, they're nev they've never been a team under uh, John Mozeliak's tenure as president of baseball operations that's gone all in at the trade deadline. And here's what I think makes the Cardinals the Cardinals. You just look at what they did at the deadline this year. They shored up their starting pitching need with two respectable arms. And they didn't trade away a single one of their top prospects. You saw the asking price of Castillo and Montas and even some of the lesser names that we saw come afloat to the deadline as it, we trickled down to it. But it was a tall ask for pitching acquisitions and the Cardinals being able to get what they need now and maintain their future. I mean, you're talking about an organization that has one of the best farm systems in baseball, despite not drafting the top 15 in, I don't know, a decade. So... What makes the Cardinals the Cardinals is their ability to continuously put out winning teams and winning lineups. Sean Mazelak has never had a losing season in his 15 years as their president of baseball operations, and that's what makes the Cardinals a little bit different than other organizations. So, yes, it is super exciting to feel like your team, as from a fan, has a chance to acquire a generational talent in Juan Soto, but that would have depleted their meticulous calculations in their minor league system for years to come, and that just ultimately wasn't a move that Mozeliak was going to make. I mean, he took aside Dylan Carlson over the weekend before the deadline and said, you're not getting traded. He did the same to Nolan Gorman, said you're not getting traded. And I think fans, while as exciting it is to have that star blockbuster trade at the deadline, 
Cardinals have made those moves in the offseason where they aren't necessarily operating out of desperation and they're able to acquire that talent like Paul Goldschmidt, like Nolan Arnato, for significantly less. So I wasn't necessarily surprised. I actually think the more that I let the trade deadline drama sink in and evaluate it, that the Cardinals were one of the teams that operated the best at August 2nd. Is there any concern Nolan Arenado could seek a new contract this offseason? You know what? I don't think so. He's always wanted to be a Cardinal. He came to St. Louis for a reason. I think that was also a reason why there was a little bit more pressure on the front office at this deadline. You need to appease your stars, especially when one has one more opt-out clause remaining. I personally don't think Nolan Arnato has put too much thought into it, mainly because he just seems so content here. But, you know, he has made it very clear He's never won a division in his career. That is the bare minimum goal for him this season, obviously. The, the biggest one is to win a World Series, but that goes without saying. Uh, I think that'll be a conversation that he has or a decision that he has later, maybe September. But for right now, all things point to him being super happy in St. Louis. He seems like a different player, more relieved, uh, more confident going forward after the deadline. I think that speaks volumes to where he's at right now. Katie Wu, you're generous to spend some time with us. We appreciate it. Hope you can enjoy what is uh, shaping up to be an entertaining and two-horse race, as we all thought, in the NL Central and into the postseason. Thanks so much. Guys, thanks so much for having me. Have a good one. All right, that's Katie Wu. Give her a follow on Twitter and, uh, better yet, read her at The Athletic with, uh, well, I'm just saying it's really good writing. All around, up and down, you find good coverage uh, in that publication. We also get good pub, uh, coverage from Colin Likas on the preps scene here in town, and he will join us next from the News Gazette. You're listening to Sports Talk on DWS. What? They've named a starter? Tommy DeVille. <laughs> Welcome back to Sports Talk. I'm Scott, he's Evan, and Colin Likas is here as well, covering the prep scene and more. Good to see you, sir. Yep, thanks for having me. Speaking of feet, you came in without shoes or socks. That's true. I, I don't wear socks very often, honestly, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Do you do those, um, you ever wear those, they look like gloves, but they're for feet? Did you ever wear oh, those? I know what you're talking about. I had friends who did, but no, I never. That I was never a wore thing those. for about a year. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I just took my shoes off because I didn't want to wear them for a little while. So but I used to do the same thing. I haven't done it here, but the the floors are pretty clean here, and I mean, I'm sure there's some stuff that I can't well, see. It's probably not a conversation that we should have, but the floors here are pretty clean. They're all carpeted too, which makes me feel better. Like if it was like tile floor or something like that, I'd feel weirder about it for some well, reason. Well, yeah, then you get that that cold vibe. Yeah, but you're not barefoot in, in the shoes, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Evans, like something's wrong here. Yeah, sockless. Sockless. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't that cause like blisters and yeah. no? no, it does to me. I've been okay. He's Colin. He's, okay, he's built different. I, I, I was going to say did, I've I've got very sensitive yeah. feet. I ain't built for that. I did run in middle school and high school, so maybe that's hardened the skin on my feet to a certain <laughs> extent. Ah, built I, I up those know. calluses. But yeah, I, no, I don't. Are you like a barefoot problems. squatter? I know that's a thing too. <laughs> I don't. I don't squat. <laughs> oh, okay. Skip. So Colin skips I, I, leg day. I, I don't bend. <laughs> period. <laughs> You're either vertical or horizontal. Yeah, pretty much. I, I don't. Be- I don't bend. I like. Case in point, he's. It's standing bad. for this segment. Yeah. This is going great. <laughs> yeah. Good good segment so far. <laughs> yep. Hey, Urbana, as we thought might happen, mm. no football for varsity this year. What's the latest? Yeah, it was certainly a concern, you know, when you uh, when you know that they're 
they got 30, 35 kids coming out for a varsity season, and a good chunk of those kids are underclassmen, some of whom haven't played varsity football before. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's going to be tough uphill sledding, especially in the Big 12 Conference where you know your Peorias and your Normals are not going to take it easy on you with much bigger rosters of older players. So yeah, Urbana going junior varsity only. Yeah, last fall, they played one varsity game, their opener against Centennial, and then went JV only. So I think they kind of uh, figured from last season learn from last season a little bit um also the fact that they just changed head coaches a week ago um after edmund jones resignation was followed by the interim uh tag being placed on curtis blandon who used to be an assistant coach at urbana back in the mid uh, 2010s so uh, as of now you know i, I talked with curtis uh, earlier today he said we're just going on like uh, like we would if we were playing a varsity season our games are just on mondays now instead of fridays it's the same way that fisher was approaching uh their season when they decided to go JV only earlier this month as well. I'm hoping those are the only two schools that end up having to do this, but, you know, last season we had a few schools that, uh, like Urbana, canceled their their varsity seasons partway through. Uh, Sullivan, Watsika, Argenta all didn't finish out their varsity seasons. So, I mean, anything can happen, unfortunately. Numbers are are pretty low across the board. There are some teams that we talked to in the last week or so that actually have seen numbers go up, which is good news, but that is kind of the outlier as opposed to the norm right now. Uh, Urbana aside, what was decided last night uh, about Central playing at McKinley? So nothing was decided officially. Um, The city council wanted a plan put together, a formal plan put in place and presented to them about what this whole deal would look like of trying to play a varsity football game at McKinley Field, at Central's McKinley Field, I should say, since Urbana also has a McKinley Field. Um, But yes, uh, Mm. the, the general idea that was proposed was Central versus Urbana week five saturday afternoon 1 p.m game Um, obviously half of that equation is now gone Um, those two teams probably will still just play a jv game because jv games have been happening at Mm. mckinley no problem so that shouldn't be an issue but uh central is i talked with tim turner today their coach he said they're hopeful to go find a new opponent Um, he doesn't think it's really feasible for them to try and make the mckinley game any of the other home games that central had on the schedule Mm. they're supposed to face centennial at home in week four which is obviously at centennial because they share tommy stewart field and the central's only other two home games this year are week six against peoria notre dame and week nine against peoria richwoods um and tim told me kind of flatly that he doesn't think it's really conceivable at this point to try and make the mckinley game any other week besides the one they had been working toward for the past month or so so central's gonna go out try to find a new opponent and then push forward with the uh putting together an official proposal plan what have you to try and make this this Saturday game happened at McKinley, but as of now, nothing is officially decided. I imagine if you're Tim Turner, you saw this coming for a while, so maybe you've already been working the phones and your contacts on this. Yeah, I, I would have to think so, just because Urbana, you know, they didn't play in the spring of 2021. They barely played a varsity schedule in the fall of 2021, so I think you just safe rather than sorry kind of have to do that i'm sure centennial is kind of in the same boat they're supposed to face urbana week one uh that's a really short turnaround to try and find an opponent for week one for centennial i would not be surprised if they end up having to just accept a forfeit win for that game um because it's such we're talking less than a month until the season opens less than three weeks really Uh, kind of a tough turnaround to try and find a game that quick texter asks on the castle heating and cooling text line and i believe you were tweeting about this at least is eight man a possibility for urbana so i initially thought the answer was no because i thought the way the eight man bylaws were written was that school had to be under 325 enrollment 
after talking with Nathan Watson over at STM, whose program is an eight-man program, and rereading the bylaws, you could have an eight-man program at a bigger school, but you're not playoff eligible, according to the huh. bylaws that the eight-man group uh, made. And those aren't IHSA bylaws. Those are right. bylaws that the eight-man association made for themselves when they created the, the group a few years ago. So, uh, you know, if Urbana wanted to go play eight-man, which I don't think they really want to, but if they if they wanted to, then it sounds like they could, but not have playoffs, which, I mean, JV, they're not going to have playoffs either. So it's it's kind of the, the same deal for that one. But, yeah, for programs like Urbana, also Sandwich, which isn't a local team, but they have an enrollment well over 325, and they canceled their varsity season last month. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that is a possibility, and uh, I'm curious to see if we start seeing some bigger schools dive into eight-man, even if there is no playoff system for them in place, instead of trying to just gut out a varsity schedule or turn to JV only. Okay, since you work with covering youth mm-hmm. and – I, I just wanted to ask about this this pitcher, this Little League World Series pitcher, <laughs> and they haven't gotten to the World Series part of it right. yet, but the, the regional player, what have you, uh, drills a kid in the helmet a- a- accidentally and, and hits a batter, mm-hmm. and he goes to first base. Kid, the kid who pitched it is now crying on the mound, yeah. and the batter at first base now comes over to console him and gives him a hug, and most of the world is saying what a great display of, <laughs> of, of sportsmanship. Uh, for whatever reason, this has become a, uh, a point for various talking heads to, I mean, what what better than 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds <laughs> to have elegance. hot takes on? Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, some people are calling this soft and, and, right. and all that. So, uh, you know, give us your hot take <laughs> I, on I sportsmanship. Yeah, I don't know that I have a hot take on sportsmanship. Uh, it feels like when whenever these teams are involved in the Little League World Series or the lead-up to it in this case, I feel like they're told going in by, like, program officials or whoever's leading this thing that you guys if there's ever a moment for you to be extra sportsmanlike, mm-hmm. you, you kind of take it that's kind of what it feels like because there's a lot more high-fiving and a lot more butt slaps and a lot more stuff like that that tends to go on than i think probably does at their typical little league games like their their all-star games or their state tournaments or however they qualify <laughs> for a regional i guess um so yeah obviously no problem with it i mean you're not gonna you shouldn't look down on an 11 or a 12 year old for trying to say it's okay it's okay that you hit me in the head with a pitch i mean it's his prerogative if he wants to if he wants to go up and hug the kid is uh it's a little unfortunate that the pitcher wasn't able to you know hug him back really because it's kind of a weird situation where you just have somebody hugging somebody who's not <laughs> hugging you back but other than that brothers I, don't shake hands. yeah exactly but other than that no you can't I, I don't think you can have a problem with that i mean his prerogative to to show some sportsmanship and that was nice of him to do so i'm I just, I'm just glad was, the kid's okay I instantly thought he was crying. I assumed he was crying because he was concerned about hitting him that hard. I think so. And knocking him down. Not, I made a mistake no. and I put a guy on base. I think he was stunned. Because Be- I, I have seen kids cry in baseball for doing that. Yeah. For walking somebody or hit, hitting him. And but, I mean, they were at that point, I think they were winning. His team was winning the game. The pitcher's team was. Uh, yeah, I think it was more so like... Uh, did I just concuss a kid? Did I just badly injure a kid with a with a high fastball? Yeah, it's unfortunate situation, but ended up pretty good for all parties, I think. I really don't think we should just uh, look. There, there was a lot of judgment going around on a on however old that kid was. Yeah. you know, and kids are just they're, they're and also to your point about sportsmanship, I've seen it now that my son is of age to be in youth baseball, kids can be really cruel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The assumption that they're always just being, oh, 
No. Like, they can be really there, me- there bad are, at each other. There are words and actions that happen that we don't see or hear necessarily that even I don't see or hear along the sidelines or right next to the field or what have you that are you find out about afterwards. Like, geez, that's, oh, there's a lot going on there. When, when people try to bring up college sports and talk about, you know, the purity and the love of the <laughs> game, go watch a 10 or a 12-year-old. Mm, there, there's yeah. the love of the game. See yeah. how those parents treat those officials and <laughs> how the kids act. You, you want love of the game, I'll, I'll see you over at First Federal Field next June. There and you and we'll take in all the Little League games together. Uh, I've seen some some stuff. Some stuff. All right, Colin, we appreciate it. Yep, thanks, guys. Colin Like is covering the prep scene. We finish out in a moment. All right, that'll do it. Um, under the category of things you never saw before, baseball player called up by the Pittsburgh Pirates, dropped his phone while sliding into third base. Son, let me tell you something. That's... For a team 25 games under 500, supposed to be, you know, on the up and up in, in terms of a rebuild, not not a good look. I would not be happy if that happened to a Cubs player. Ist verboten, uh, just in case you're wondering. You're not allowed to have a phone with you, let alone that it just yeah, looks I'm, weird. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. It's more like you're, <laughs> you're doing a job. Do your job. <laughs> oh, hang on. Let me check Twitter. Okay, thanks so much for being with us, everybody. This is News Talk 1493.9 FM, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana, Champaign Multimedia Group Station. White Sox coming up at 630. Have a good one.